Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Did it seem strange to you at all that he was in Los Angeles at the same time his best friend was shot in the back of the head, approximately two miles from where she was killed? Did it seem strange to you when you heard it? No. Mr. Durst, does that sound reasonable? Well, I did it. It's either reasonable or unreasonable, but it's factual that I did do it. Well, ma'am, you're now aware that Bob Durst wrote the cadaver note, correct? Yes. And you're aware that Bob Durst has said it's a note that only the killer could have written, correct? Yes. What does that mean? I can't tell you um, why he said it. Um, I don't know. There are a couple of different possibilities, Mr. Durst. Your position could be that, you know what, those witnesses who are saying Susan said that to them, are either mistaken or they're lying, or they are neither mistaken or lying. Susan told them that and she was lying. Which is it? Susan told them that and she was lying. Welcome back to Jury Duty, the trial of Robert Durst. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. I'm joined by my co-host, Brittany Bookbinder. On our last episode, we recapped the events surrounding the reading of the jury's guilty verdict against Robert Durst for the murder of Susan Berman. We then recognized a number of the most unforgettable and significant moments from the trial. Those honorable mentions, as we called them, were built around the moments that reporter Charlie Bagley, who's been covering the Durst story for over 20 years and who was in court virtually every day of the trial, left off of his top 10 trial moments. On this episode, we're going to count down Charlie's list. The way we will do this is that I will identify the clip of the moment, then we will play the clip, and then Charlie will talk to Brittany and me about that moment's significance. So let's begin our countdown with Charlie's number 10 most significant moment from the trial. Bob Durst saying, I did what I did because I did what I did because I am who I am. Now, Mr. Durst, can you explain why if Susan Berman for years was telling your mutual friends that you were a murderer why you continued to give her money? Can you explain that? You're asking me. I knew she was saying those things, and I did give her money. Mr. Durst, exactly. Does that sound reasonable? Well, I did it. It's either reasonable or unreasonable, but it's factual that I did do it. Why would you give somebody money who was out there saying that you had murdered your wife? I feel like I'm being asked to analyze myself. I did what I did because I did what I did because I am who I am. I think that there were these moments where, I don't know if we call it the old Bob, the Bob who could be brutally honest about himself. 
and tantalizingly close to the truth. It was just a telling observation about him. He doesn't really have an explanation for everything that he does, but he does whatever he wants to do, when he wants to do it, and how he wants to do it. And that is a lot related to money and privilege. Absolutely. If this were a musical, that would be a title of a song. (laughs) Let's move on to Doug Oliver, number nine. Doug Oliver was one of a handful of friends that testified. He was called actually by the prosecution, but he could have been a character witness for Bob. But he decided that he was going to try to stiff arm the prosecutor on every question that was asked. Do you recall previously stating, Mr. Oliver, that you married your ex-wife, Rachel, in 1973? I don't recall me making that statement. Okay, this is going to be pleasant. Uh, When did you marry your wife, Rachel? In 1973. And in 1975, did you believe that you had made enough money and you didn't have to work again? No. Do you recall saying to me during a recorded interview on October 30th, 2019, that in 1975, you thought you had made enough money and did not have to work again, and you moved to Paris, but you ran out of money and came back to New York. Do you recall saying that? No, I do not. Is the statement, Mr. Oliver, I, I was going to wait a little while, Your Honor, but but, but, but really, so Your Honor, at this point in time, Your Honor, I'm going to ask that the witness be designated as, as an adverse witness. So, uh, yes, granted. But I think the most telling thing happened after Oliver testified, and it goes to the issue of credibility, which looms so large in this. And and the judge, with the jury out of the room, observed that Oliver was the least cooperative witness in my career. He further said that testimony had a profound lack of credibility. And this isn't the first characterization of the witnesses that might have been helpful to Bob. Speaking of another such witness, your number eight significant moment was Susie Giordano's testimony. What part of that was particularly significant, Charlie? The big thing, aside from many comical things that came up, she talked about how at Bob's direction, she went to get him a bag and to send this bag to him when she knew he was about to be on the run and how she was oblivious to the fact that as she packs the bag, there was actually $117,000 in getaway money inside. He called you from New Orleans. Do you recall testifying to that? Yes. Did he ask you to do something? Yes, he wanted me to send him um, luggage that he had in New York. So what do you put inside the suitcases? I literally didn't pack neatly, (laughs) I threw just a few items and a pair of shoes, a shirt and a sweater, um, the shoes. Ma'am, do you know what that is? They're envelopes. I want you to assume, ma'am, mm-hmm. that when that suitcase was open, mm-hmm. underneath the clothes and the shoes were those envelopes. I want you to assume for a moment that those envelopes contain roughly $115,000, that they were inside the suitcase when the FBI opened it. That's what I was told. Do you know how that got there? I would assume it was in there. I didn't put it in there. You didn't mention it until Agent Perry told you the following. Quote, 
I can't stress enough that you need to be crystal clear with me right now about what you did and what you tried and what stuff you sent to Bob. Because what I have in here isn't going to look very good for you, okay? So that's what Investigator Perry told you, correct? Correct. And once he said that, you knew, uh-oh, the FBI is here, and they're basically telling me if I tell any more lies, I could be in trouble. Is that true? He asked me, I answered him. Actually, Eric Perry said I should have looked through it because there could be a gun in there. And I said, well, I certainly hope there isn't because I didn't look through it. Were you aware at that time that if you had sent Bob Durst that kind of money, that potentially it could be a crime? No. So in your mind, you had no reason to deny anything because uh, there was nothing wrong with sending $115,000 hidden beneath clothes and shoes in a suitcase to an alias of another individual. That was your position. You thought that was okay. I didn't know there was money, so why did I think I would do something wrong? But the real interesting moment came that as she's being cross-examined by the prosecutor, Bob yells, you should be objecting. So ma'am, I want you to assume that Mr. Durst has admitted to physically and emotionally abusing his wife, Kathy, on repeated occasions. We should be objecting. The other aspect of Susie Giordano's testimony was that when she was asked by John Lewin whether Robert Durst spoke to her at all about his trip to California or anything he knew about Susan Berman's murder, Susie said, no, absolutely not. And then when Durst got on the stand, he completely threw her on the bus and actually told Lewin that he had told Susie Giordano that he wrote the cadaver note. He never spoke about Susan Berman. Ma'am, so at the time that this issue was coming up, yes. you were aware that Bob Durst's version of events was that he was not in Los Angeles, correct? Yes. You were aware that his position at that time was, I did not write the cadaver, correct? Yes. You were aware at that time, ma'am, that his position was, I did not find Susan's body, correct? Yes. And in fact, ma'am, were you aware said you watched the jinx, that Bob Durst had said that the cadaver note was a letter that only the killer could have written? Yes. Well, ma'am, you're now aware that Bob Durst wrote the cadaver note, correct? Yes. And you're aware that Bob Durst has said it's a note that only the killer could have written, correct? Yes. What does that mean? I can't tell you um, why he said it. Um, I don't know. I told Susie Giordano that Oh, so when did you first tell Susie Giordano the cadaver was going to be a problem for you? Would have been way, way before that. Probably, I guess it was probably after Andrew confronted me with my handwriting on the cadaver note. And when you told her it was going to be a problem for you, Mr. Durst, you previously testified that you had told her, correct, that you had written the cadaver note and had found Susan Berman's body, correct? Correct. Let's now move on to number seven, which is Dr. Elizabeth Loftus and the contradiction between what Loftus was testifying to and some of Bob's own testimony. Absolutely. So Dr. Elizabeth Loftus was one of two witnesses called by the defense. 
And what she discussed was how time, media reports, and leading questions can distort the memory of witnesses. The prosecution sought to portray her as a gun for hire, a person that would say the same thing no matter who the witness was. But in the end, Bob settled the whole argument by testifying that he knew that the witnesses were telling the truth because he knew that Susan had told him that she helped Bob cover up his murder of Kathy Durst. There are a couple of different possibilities, Mr. Durst. Your position could be that, you know what, those witnesses who are saying Susan said that to them are either mistaken or they're lying, or they are neither mistaken or lying. Susan told them that, and she was lying. Which is it? Susan told them that, and she was lying. Mr. Durst, would you agree then that if that is the case, that you are not saying that these witnesses are either mistaken or lying, you are simply saying that Susan was lying when she told them that, is that correct? When Susan said, and she provided me with an alibi, Susan, excuse me, was lying. What this has to do with the psychology lady, I have no idea. So number six is the testimony of Ben Hodges. What was significant about that? Dr. Hodges has mapped the tides of Galveston Bay, where Bob dumped Morris Black's body parts. The head was never found. And Ben Hodges, he testified about how the head should have come back to shore. There was nowhere else to go in a place where the water is only a couple inches deep. He made clear that someone must have carried away the head. It suggests that maybe the head and the wounds on the head would have contradicted Bob's story of self-defense. If it's been asserted that the head could have been carried out into Galveston Bay, into deeper water, or out to sea, or beyond those areas anywhere in the green or the yellow you've put on that diagram, based on your knowledge, your experience, your expertise, is this in any way a legitimate scenario that's supported by scientific analysis? No, it's not. Were you further made aware that potentially there's an allegation that a missing head could have been carried away by a blue crab or some other local marine species? I heard that and it had a hard time not laughing because none of the crab, the blue crab or the stone crab, behave like ants and work together. And the crabs are so relatively small, their ability to move ahead doesn't strike with any of the marine science that I've known. I want you to assume that the head was dumped at the same time at the same general spot as the other body parts based on your background, your training, your experience, would you expect it to have been located with the other body parts? Yes. Any doubt about that? I have no doubt about that. Assuming it wasn't either A, not thrown in, or B, someone went back and picked it up and took it out of the water. It, it had to, if it was thrown in, somebody had to remove it, or it was never thrown in. Those, those are, are the only things that make sense to me. Well, that's a good segue into number five on your list, Charlie, which is what Dick DeGuerin and later Bob Durst himself said about Dick DeGuerin's testimony in the Galveston trial. Yeah, as the testimony started into Galveston, I, I was sort of startled by the first sentence from the defense lawyer, Dick DeGuerin. 
he said, this is, so the jury can be reminded, this is what happened 20 years ago almost in Galveston. It's not necessarily what would be the testimony today. And that, wow, that, that really had me scratching my head. Next we have uh, the, the testimony of defendant Robert Durst that's going to be presented. This is a testimony given during the Galveston trial which took place over several days starting on October 22nd of 2003. Is Mr. DeGuerin playing the part of Mr. DeGuerin? I am. And Your Honor, this is, so the jury can be reminded, this is what happened 20 years ago almost in Galveston. It's not necessarily what would be the testimony today. It, it's what happened in, in Galveston. That's uh, not an appropriate. Yeah, I well, think the evidence. The evidence is the is certainly the evidence. Yeah. You can't speculate as to what that there would be different answers or what today. Uh, so that is just. I, I agree, yeah. Mr. DeGarren. I agree with the first part. This is testimony from 20 years ago. The rest of it is it's not the jury's concern. It's I think it was stated. This is the testimony of Bob Durst, the defendant. Yes, Robert Durst. You mean? He was lying or that all that testimony was incorrect, was perjury, and that now there'd be some new testimony. But this turned out to be the curtain raiser for Bob's own testimony in which he conceded that he had perjured himself at least twice before the Galveston jury and five times in Los Angeles. Another truly stunning moment, Charlie, was when they played the conditional witness interview of Emily Altman, someone with whom you're very familiar. Tell us about why that's on the list. Emily is a longtime friend of Bob's. Her husband grew up with Bob, and she had fought to stay off the stand. But here she was in 2017 testifying and coming under a blistering cross-examination by John Lewin. And in the midst of it, she blurts out that Bob had told her that he was in Beverly Hills at the time that Susan was murdered. Did Bob Durst ever tell you in the course of your relationship as friends that he was in Los Angeles at the time of Susan Berman's murder? I think he said he was in Los Angeles Los Angeles, excuse me, at some time, but I don't remember him specifically saying he was there when Susie Berman was murdered. When he's saying he's in Los Angeles, you're talking about at the time Susan Berman was murdered, correct? In December. So he said he was in Los Angeles in December of 2000, correct? Yeah. Did you ask him specifically what dates in December of 2000 he was in Los Angeles? Did Bob Durst tell you where he was staying in Los Angeles at this time. Did he mention a hotel or where what he was doing here? I think he mentioned Beverly Hilton. I know this hotel. So he told you that he was staying at the Beverly Hilton in Los Angeles at the time Susan Berman was murdered. Is that correct? Yes. Ma'am, at that time. Did you think that was important information that the police might need to know? No. Did it seem strange to you at all that he was in Los Angeles at the same time his best friend was shot in the back of the head? I don't have distance, but if it's the Beverly Hilton, approximately two miles from where she was killed. Did it seem strange to you when you heard it? No. Ma'am, are you aware 
as you sit here today that Mr. Durst has never admitted to investigators or to the media that he was in Los Angeles in December of 2000. Are you aware of that? No, I'm not. But sometimes Bob says stuff that, that may or may not be true in Tyson. So what you're saying is Bob Durst told you that he was in Los Angeles in December of 2000. But just because he said that, you don't know if it's true. I don't. I wasn't there. Can you think of a reason why Mr. Durst would want to have told you, I was in Los Angeles at the time Susan Berman was murdered, but that's not true. I can't get inside Bob's head. This was startling because it was the first time that anyone placed Bob in Los Angeles. Investigators had always known that he flew from New York to San Francisco and then taken a commuter flight up to Trinidad in Northern California. There was a phone call from Garberville, which is uh, about an hour and a half south of Trinidad, but no one had put him inside Los Angeles. So this came as a huge surprise and a big victory, actually, for the prosecution. That was perhaps the single most significant moment of the trial because Emily Altman's testimony there is probably what forced Robert Durst into acknowledging authorship of the cadaver note. So even if he got handwriting experts to testify, Emily Altman's placing him in LA along with the similarities between the cadaver note and the so-called Sarab note made it impossible for Durst to be able to sustain a story that he wasn't in in LA and wasn't the author of the note. Right. And then when Bob gets on the stand, we hear in a phone call that he refers to Emily as a babbling idiot for saying this. Yeah. Emily was appalled. He said that in a letter to her and she was a basket case. She didn't want to be in the courtroom. She didn't want to be testifying. And, and then this is how he slaps at her by calling her a babbling idiot. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, moving on to number three on your list, Mella Kaufman's testimony. Yeah, I thought this was one of the most poignant moments. Mella Kaufman was the daughter of a partner of Susan's, and she offered the most clear-eyed portrait of Susan, how she enjoyed her company, her, her loyalty to her. You know, she mentioned that if she was having trouble with a teacher in school, Susan wouldn't go to the teacher. She would go right to the principal and demand that the teacher be fired. That was her role as a mother figure for Mella. But on the other hand, Susan could be pretty trying and blistering when you had a disagreement with her. And unfortunately, they had a disagreement towards the end of Susan's life. But this is a woman who's really been through the ringer, and I thought she provided highly credible testimony on the stand. I had had 
a lot of inconsistency and um, it was hard for me to trust family. When, when you first met her, did you trust her? No. Did your relationship with her develop over time? Yes. How close did you guys become? Uh, mother and daughter plus, I would say. Let's um, now talk about some of Susan's, what you perceived as negative qualities. Okay. What were some of her negative qualities? She was incredibly manipulative, uh, fearful, extremely fearful, extremely controlling. She would soar high when she was going after something and she could, she could collapse. Have you previously described Susan as potentially being, she could be vindictive if someone did something that she didn't like? Oh, yes. She, that was actually what I considered her worst quality. Okay. She was incredibly vindictive. Okay. It was disturbing to me. What were some of the best personality traits that Susan Berman had? She had an unbelievable awareness for the value of um, too vague but human connection or relationships. Um, she had a, a depth of love for those who were um, friends and family that was, and just an, just an appreciation of how precious those relationships were uh, that was, um, I don't know, remarkable, uh, very, um, I think anyone would be sort of stunned. It would not be some, your average person at all. She also was very bright and very entertaining and um, incredibly supportive. What do you mean by entertaining? Uh, she was a lot of fun and she was a great storyteller. She also was... Um, she had a way of drawing you out of yourself and making it a really good time. And she was a lot of fun to talk to. Lots of laughing. How smart was she? I'd say she's pretty much brilliant. I mean, that's, she was very, very bright. Yeah, it was really poignant and gave Susan a presence in this trial that no one else could give her. Moving on to number two on your list, Charlie, your old pal, Nick Chavin. Yeah, now here's a witness that I've known now for 21 years. He was a close friend of Bob's. He was one of his two running buddies, male running buddies in the 1980s. And Nick was still, when I met him, kind of devastated that he had been out of touch with Bob, that Bob had cut him off. But then comes a moment in 2014 where he reunites with Bob and Bob invites him to go to dinner to talk about Susie and Kathy. And on the sidewalk outside the restaurant, Nick recounts what happened. We had dinner, we talked to
just an incredible moment. And you also got a feeling in the course of his testimony how conflicted Nick was. As he put it, I was torn between the loyalty to one best friend and my loyalty to another best friend. In the end, he felt that he had to tell the truth for Susie. That brings us to the most significant moment in the trial from your perspective, Charlie. And I have to say, Brittany and I completely concurred with you on this one. Tell us what it is. This came at the end of testimony. Bob had given us an elaborate, heavily detailed account of how he came to Los Angeles and he had a plan for a staycation with Susan and then to drive up to Big Sur for dinner and the next day to go to San Francisco. And all of a sudden, the prosecution pulls out Susan's day planner, which had been sitting on her desk at the time she was murdered. You could say it was a piece of evidence hiding in plain sight. Mr. Durst, the original plan was for you to get there late on the 22nd. We talked sometime between midnight and 1 a.m. And then for you and Susan to go over to the Chateau Marmont, correct? Correct. What was going to happen to the dogs when you were staying at the Chateau Marmont? No, I was Brenner was going to take care of them, was going to walk them and feed them. Is that a detail you've ever mentioned before? Wait a minute. While we were in Big Sur on the 27th and the 28th, Niles Brenner was going to walk and feed the dogs. While we were staying in Chateau Marmont, I assume Susan intended to walk and feed the dogs. So the plan was you were going to pick up Susan at midnight, go over the Chateau Marmont, and then she was going to be going back and forth all the way to the Beverly Hills area to feed and let out her three dogs. Is that your testimony? You're making it seem like the Chateau Marmont and Susan's house are hundreds of miles apart. It's a short drive, five or ten minutes, whatever it is. You think to go from West Hollywood to Beverly Hills is a five-minute drive? Is that Ten your... minutes, fifteen minutes, whatever you want. That is what I think Susan was planning on doing. So your testimony now is there really isn't an answer. You're simply saying that whatever will fit into your narrative that's what you were going to do. Is that what your last answer meant? Mr. Durst, what were you going to do with those three dogs during the entire trip up to Northern California? We were going to Northern California on the 27th, and Susan was going to get back 
to Los Angeles in the afternoon of the 28th. And how was she getting back? She was going to fly. And were you paying for her flight, I assume? I'm sure she would have paid for her own flight. Are you aware that Susan Berman had money at that time to be paying for flights? It, it, it never came up. We made the plans to drive up. When we got to San Francisco, we were going to meet with Mike Yoshida for two hours. She had asked me when she should schedule her flight, and I said any time after four. And Susan knew about these plans well in advance, correct? Yes. Mr. Durst, are you aware of Susan Berman making any flight reservations to fly from San Francisco to Los Angeles? I'm not aware that she made reservations or not. Are you aware of her making any arrangements to have somebody pick her up at the airport? I was going to drive her to the airport. What she was going to do in Los Angeles, I really do not know. And you've already testified that this trip up to Big Sur in San Francisco was going to start on what day? When were you leaving? The 27th of December. Mr. we're going to show you Susan's day planner, and we're going to put up various entries, and I want you to look at them. You recognize this to be Susan's handwriting, correct? It looks like it could be Susan's handwriting. On the first page, do you recognize the name Susan Berman and the phone number? I think the landline had a different number to it. Do you recognize the address? 1527 Benedict was her address. Let's talk about December 27th, which is Wednesday. Would you agree that on the 27th and 28th, according to your testimony, Susan is supposed to be with you up in Big Sur in San Francisco? Is that correct? We were supposed to leave around noon. And meet friends of her for dinner in the pantry at 8 p.m. So if then you go, we were going to go to the Big Sur Inn. Right, going back to the 27th, she's got plans at 11 a.m. with Tom Patton. Do you see that? I see that. Can you explain, Mr. Durst, how it is that she has plans in her planner book on the 27th at 11 a.m. with Tom Patton, and yet you're supposed to be up in Big Sur in San Francisco with her? Can you explain that? Oh, I know her appointment with Tom Patty was on the telephone. Okay, let's go back to the, to the uh, 28th for a second. So, she's got a hair appointment with David Eisenman on the 28th. Do you see that crossed out at all? No. How's she going to make that hair appointment on the 28th when she's up in San Francisco? She wasn't going to be able to see David Eisenman. Mr. Durst, we're going to go to the 22nd. This is the day that you originally were supposed to meet Susie Berman, is that correct? Correct. Um, I'm not going to go through everything on the 22nd, but it says at 4.30, it says Rich Markey. Would you agree? I don't see Markey. Talking right here. Mr. That's Markey. Well, if that's Marky, that's Marky. It doesn't read like Marky to me. So, Mr. Durst, there also is a notation that says, call Ellen right below it, looks like. You see that? That looks like call Ellen. Yes, that, 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 that's what I said. Do you see any notation on the 22nd, Mr. Durst, that references you? 
I do not specifically see anything describing the fact that I was going to arrive that evening. We're going to show you the 23rd, Mr. Durst. This is when you are supposed to be on a staycation with Susan. Would you agree that the 23rd, what we can see here is glasses, and then underneath, doctor someone. We have something about a doctor, but you would agree nothing about a staycation or you, correct? There's nothing about our staycation on the pages you've shown me. So, Mr. Durst, can you explain why it is that in Susan's Day Planner, we see not one entry involving you, the staycation, Big Sur, San Francisco, the Chateau Marmont, or an airline flight during the time when you are supposed to be with her, both in Los Angeles, Big Sur, and San Francisco. Can you explain that? Susan kept her friends apart. She could have had a separate listing someplace where she listed everything for her staycation. Mr. Durst, is it your testimony that you believe that Susan Berman had a separate planner book purely for your staycation? I believe that's possible, yes. Does that sound reasonable to you? Yes, that sounds reasonable. The prosecution went day by day on the calendar, and there was no mention anywhere of a staycation. There was no mention of Bob Durst. It was absolutely stunning. And a, a couple of other things on that point. First of all, I felt at the time it was like Susan Berman was testifying herself. That day planner had enough detail in it, and there were enough things that were not in it that absolutely refuted Bob's story. Among them was the hairdresser, Mr. Eisenman. There was an appointment in there for December 28th on the very day and around the very time that Bob and Susan were meant to be meeting with the architect up in San Francisco, according to Bob's story, to discuss renovating a house that Bob and Susan would live in. And Eisenman himself had testified that Susan was going to see him within days of her murder. And then on top of all of that, the fact that there was a set of stamps in that planner that matched almost identically the stamp on the cadaver note. You are aware, Mr. Durst, that Susan Berman had the same kind of stamps in her house as the stamp that was on the cadaver note. You're aware of that, correct? What do you mean a stamp? Well, you placed a stamp on the cadaver note to mail it, correct? Postage stamp. Yes, I mailed the cadaver note. And you are aware, Mr. Durst, that in Susan's house, that police found the same kind of stamps as you put on the cadaver note, correct? This is the first time I'm being told that. Sustained. Uh, under what grounds, Your Honor? Subtract non-evidence. You may produce the evidence. Confront the, the witness with the evidence. All right. Or, or perhaps it's already. Okay. Mr. Durst, now you would agree you gave a pretty detailed recitation of everything that you did, correct? I'm talking about at, at Susan's. 
You were pretty detailed, right? Pretty detailed. Whatever pretty detailed means. Are you agreeing or disagreeing? I don't know if I should agree or disagree, because I do not know what pretty detailed means. So what I'm asking you is, you would agree that you describe step-by-step step what you did from entering the house to leaving the house to thinking about calling 911. You described all that in detail, correct? If what I said was in detail, then it was in detail. All right, so Mr. Durst, is there a reason why given all the details you gave, that you have no memory of making the decision to write the cadaver note at the house and then getting the paper envelope and stamps from Susan's. I definitely, absolutely did not write the cadaver note in the house. Now, my question is, though, is if you've said that you might have gotten the paper, the envelope, and the stamp from Susan's house, correct? I do not recall getting a stamp from Susan's house. I do not recall getting a stamp anywhere. And I do not recall where I got the envelope. In the SUV, I had writing paper and a pen. Did you have an envelope and a stamp in the SUV? No. And obviously, you put the stamp on there at some point, correct? Correct. And on the right side are stamps from Susan Berman's day planner from her house. Do you see those? Yes. Would you agree, Mr. Durst, that they appear to be the same kind of stamp? Yes. So my question to you is, when you say you do not remember getting the stamp from Susan Berman's house, are you saying, you know what? I'm pretty sure I didn't get it there. Or are you saying, you know what, I have no idea. I could have gotten in there. I just don't remember. Which is it? I never knew up until this minute that the stamps in Susan Berman House were the same kind of stamp that I put on the cadaver note. I don't remember taking a stamp from Susan Berman's house. I also don't remember getting a stamp anywhere else any place else. So is it fair to say then that when you look at this, you easily could have taken a stamp from Susan's house? It's possible. There were so many things about that planner, including no mention of what Bob said was the plan for Niall Brenner to look after her dogs. And so the idea that she was going to go on a staycation or a trip to San Francisco without looking after those dogs was also another absurdity. Right. And in a case where the defense is continually saying there's no evidence, this is evidence. I mean, we've talked about that there is evidence, but I think this to me really stood out as the most compelling detail. And who knows how they would have been able to bring it up if Bob hadn't told this absurd story on direct about his arrival at Susan's house and this plan for the staycation. Absolutely. All right. Well, I don't want to pass all of this up without mentioning the one last honorable mention that many people may have thought was going to be our number one choice, which is the bathroom audio.
worse. Because we've been living with this story for so long, that particular moment, we kind of just glossed over. In any event, Charlie, thanks again for being with us. In the coming days and weeks, Charlie's going to continue to report on this story, and we'll have him back with news about what happens next to Robert Durst, and hopefully with witnesses and jurors from the trial. But in the meantime, Charlie, safe travels back to New Jersey, and we look forward to having you back on. Thank you. And Brittany, thank you for being such a great co-host on this podcast. I'm sure we'll regroup in the coming weeks, but it's been an amazing ride and thank you for everything you've done for this show. Thank you. As we mentioned on the last episode, since Durst's conviction, there have been a swirl of rumors related to the possibility of Durst's indictment in New York for the murder of his wife, Kathy. Over the next few weeks, we will follow up on these and other Durst-related stories as they develop. We also hope to bring you interviews with key witnesses and jurors from Durst's trial, and we hope you'll join us for that. Also, please stay tuned to this feed, as we will soon announce some exciting plans for the future of this Jury Duty format. But most of all, thank you so much for listening to Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Please remember that you can receive alerts and news breaks on developments in Robert Durst's murder trial, as well as new episodes of Season 2 of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, by subscribing now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Again, if you want to refresh your memory on where the prosecution and defense are heading with their arguments in the trial, go back and re-listen to episodes from Season 1. And head over to CrimeStory.com for in-depth coverage of the Durst story. Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, is created and produced by Carrie Antholis. This episode was co-produced and edited by Alexis Notabartolo and Brittany Bookbinder. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you'll come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst. <laughs>